Hello everyone, I'm Andrew Reed, Juris Doctor, Small Business Development, IT and Marketing Guru from sunny Victoria, BC. Follow me for new podcasts on beginner investing in business as I survive, grow and prosper in a post-COVID Canada. Disclaimer, my podcast and YouTube content offer very generalized information that has been beneficial to me. Always do your homework and due diligence and make sure that any moves you make are in your own best interest. Nothing in my content is any kind of advice and continuing to listen constitutes acceptance of this disclaimer in its entirety. Today's podcast, Effects of Nuclear War on the Economy, Part 1. What will happen to all of us? I do not know what weapons will be used for World War III. World War IV will be fought with rocks and sticks. Einstein. So this excerpt from Reuters may give you some hope that a nuclear war is less likely than it seems right now. A White House official told Reuters that Russia and the United States have long agreed that the use of nuclear weapons would have devastating consequences. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, the White House officials said. The White House also pointed out Russia has signed on to joint statements affirming a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So here are some of the effects, direct effects of a nuclear war. Direct loss of life, injury and sickness, material damage to homes, commercial premises, businesses, public services, infrastructure, equipment, supplies, humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, these, damage, these damages will create an enormous and instantaneous loss of human and physical capital. Furthermore, a nuclear weapon explosion in or near a city is likely to have economic effects beyond the immediately affected area. Um, certain industries tend to be concentrated in or near urban centers, and a nuclear detonation in such a location could devastate key sectors of a national economy, disrupting supply chains, product distribution, leading to bottlenecks. Um, business costs would rise. That's just an understatement. Competitiveness and reputation would suffer. As a result, most, if not, you know, depending on how bad the results are, most businesses would close, relocate, or go bankrupt. Schools, universities, uh, they have com- important links to commercial and government research and development. They tend to be located in major urban areas as well, which is basically ground zero. Uh, a nuclear weapon explosion will do, uh, rob the country of highly trained specialists, scientists, um, so many people will be unprotected. The institutional framework for research uh, that is the basis of discovery for innovation, all that will be wiped out. The labs that they have, most of those will be, the research labs, most of those will be wiped out. Um, hospitals, hospital-based physicians, medical offices, doctors, a uh, nuclear explosion, even just one or two, would likely result in an overall degradation of healthcare throughout the country, possibly for a long time. 
cities play a dominant role in, in government and administration. And then the, the loss of qualified staff, elected officials, the loss of documents and official records, degradation of government structures and facilities. This is going to jeopardize response efforts. Um, and it's going to obviously affect citizens' rights and the maintenance of public order. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later in this podcast. The effects of a nuclear weapon explosion are likely to be felt over an extended period of time. And they're going to generate immense socioeconomic costs with potentially large numbers of people suffering disability or permanent health effects, increased disease occurrence, emotional trauma, degraded degraded living circumstances, homelessness, displacement, interrupted education and loss of employment. The productivity of affected populations should be expected to be negatively affected over an extended period of time. You know, that's a, a nice way of putting it. Everything would just absolutely grind to a halt in the worst of ways. In 2013 and 2014, three international conferences were organized by the governments of Norway, Mexico, and Austria to comprehensively assess existing knowledge of the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. The evidence presented at the three conferences uh, demonstrated the following. So a nuclear weapon detonation in or near a populated area, populated area would, as a result of the blast wave, intense heat and radiation, radioactive fallout, all that stuff is gonna cause massive death and destruction, trigger large-scale displacement, cause long-term harm to human health and well-being, as well as long-term damage to the environment, infrastructure, socioeconomic development, and social order. Modern environmental modeling techniques demonstrates that even a small-scale use of some 100 nuclear weapons against urban targets would, in addition to spreading radiation around the world, lead to a cooling of the atmosphere shorter growing seasons, food shortages, and a global famine. The effects of a nuclear weapon detonation, notably the radioactive fallout carried downwind, could not be contained within national borders. So this is even if it's a small, localized, just a few bombs, the effects will spread. The scale of destruction and contamination after a nuclear detonation in or near a populated area could cause profound social and political disruption, as it would take several decades to reconstruct infrastructure, uh, regenerate economic activities, trade, communications, healthcare facilities, schools. No state or international body could address in an appropriate manner the immediate humanitarian emergency, nor the long-term consequences of a nuclear weapon detonation in a populated area. And I mean, this could just be a single nuclear weapon detonation in a populated area. Um, it will not be something easily remedied in any way. This is just one, and we're, we're on the brink of all-out nuclear war, so we're possibly talking of thousands or more. Uh, owing to the massive suffering and destruction caused by a nuclear detonation, it probably would not even be possible to establish these capacities to deal with one with this explosion and the consequences. Even if it's attempted, uh, it might be useful in mitigating, you know, uh, lessening the damages of the effects of an event evolving uh, nuclear vice. Maybe we can reduce it slightly. That's our, our best hope.
and again, I'm referring to small scale or one, and we're dealing with a little bit worse than that at the moment. Notably, uh, owing to the long-lasting effects of exposure to radiation, um, yeah, testing wep nuclear weapons and even using them has uh, left a legacy, and then testing itself has been b basically banned um, because of the health and environmental consequences that came with just testing these bombs. Uh, so it gets a little uh, worse than this, unfortunately. And by that, I am referring to EMPs, electromagnetic pulses. So nuclear weapons, when they detonate, they generate uh, an EMP. And in even a single EMP strike from a single bomb or just even an EMP device, uh, you risk the deaths of millions of people, depending on the area because there's no electricity, uh, no cars, no communications, no tap water, no infrastructure. Um, you are disabling the police, ambulances, fire, uh, everything, cell phones. Um, You're taking out all things electronic, and I can't tell you how dependent we have become on those. It's just unimaginable. Uh, the cities will be likely taken over by street gangs or, or people that have you know, grouped together to defend themselves. Uh, if you have food or supplies, people are, are likely going to attempt to take it from you. Um, people who live in the country are going to see people that are trying to run from the city as a threat. Uh, if there is some government left, uh, they'll attempt to control movement, making survival that much more difficult, uh, giving you one more thing that you have to deal with in a survival situation. And so all these things I just said can be caused by nothing more than an EMP strike. I'm not even uh, referring to the effects of the explosion itself or the fallout or anything else. So, you know, if the federal government even survived, it would be a long time before uh, the average person is even going to know that the federal government has survived. So the thing about EMPs is that they uh, might not not only take out the electricity and destroy the electronic devices in their uh, immediate area where they're um, where they're discharged. They can actually travel along the grids, along the power grids, so they can uh, propagate their effects. Um, although much of what is known about EMPs is either classified as secret information or or speculative. I mean, we haven't seen large-scale testing of EMPs. Um, but most likely telecommunications networks, uh, IT, cyber equipment, uh, internet, all, all that uh, highly sophisticated medical technology, which is most of it these days, um, down to traffic grids. I mean, anything remotely electronic um, would be irreparably harmed. So this is not a this is not like, yo, you can just fix it after the pulse is over. These things will be destroyed, though. Uh, the chips will need to be replaced. So um, electrical power grids could also just pick it up, pick up the, uh, the pulse, the electromagnetic pulse itself, and transmit a spike in voltage to all the equipment that are drawing power at the time of the detonation. Um, so it's much like a really big lightning strike hitting every single thing at once um, is one theoretical effect. And then um, 
and then the scary part is that the component itself that does get hit by this pulse might in turn by its very nature amplify uh, this pulse and spread it elsewhere so we're dealing with no electricity and no infrastructure and we haven't even yet discussed the, the physical damage from the bombs and the radiation but what we're uh, looking at is you know the beginnings to some serious long-term consequences in a major 1987 report, the World Health Organization summarized existing research into the impacts on health and health services of nuclear detonations. Uh, the report said that the blast wave, thermal wave, radiation, fallout, all that stuff, devastating short and long-term effects on the body, and we're not equipped to deal with it. That's, um, that's pretty obvious. But continued uh, loss of all the critical infrastructures that we've grown used to for a prolonged period of time uh, will cause food, health, energy, and financial crises. Um, just absolutely devastating on all these things. Um, so previously, the natural disasters that we've all been dealing with in North America have been, you know, a storm or earthquake. It, um, and what we've seen in some of the smaller countries, if the disaster is big enough, then the rest of the country can't adapt to, to help the affected area. So it can leave the uh, remaining unaffected parts of the country unable to internally fund the recovery, which is scary, right? Because if we're looking at something that's bigger than that earthquake in that one country, so we're looking at nuclear devastation in multiple countries, and maybe some areas are unaffected, but um, historically those places will not be able to help the places that are affected. Um, and a nuclear weapon explosion could make recovery even that much more worse than a political embargo or natural disaster. Um, a 2007 study examined the consequences of a global nuclear war involving moderate to large portions of the current global arsenal. So the uh, authors did not specifically discuss agriculture, but they did point to a 1986 study, which assumed that um, with no food production for a year projected, that most of the people on the planet would run out of food and starve to death by then. Um, and then they state that their own results show that uh, this period of no food production would be extended by many years, um, given the uh, potential impacts of a nuclear winter. Uh, to top that-ish, uh, in a 2013 report, the um, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War concluded um, that more than 2 billion people, uh, about a third of the world's population in 2013, would be at risk of starvation in the event of just a regional nuclear exchange, say, for example, between India and Pakistan, two nuclear countries. Um, that have had conflict before it and been an area of concern. So even if, even on a smaller scale um, nuclear war between two relatively smaller countries, uh, we are at risk of losing a third of the world's population from starvation alone, um, not even considering any, some of the other possible effects, which we'll also uh, discuss those as well. Um, so reduction of food supply means uh, economically rising 
food prices. So, you know, this is going to be very wealth gap based, right? Those that are extremely wealthy will probably be most likely able to procure food and luxuries and uh, have the protections from, uh, from some of the different things that the world will, will be facing at that time. It's, um, you know, it's pretty sad in this case, but most of the vulnerable population, especially those in the poorest nations of the world, um, are the least likely to survive by a huge margin. So let's talk about uh, how the government's going to react. What kind of government are we looking at? You know, what kind of foundational government structure are we going to have after a nuclear war? So there's a concept called uh, continuity of government, COG. It's the principle of establishing, establishing defined procedures that allow a government to continue its essential operations in the case of a catastrophic event, such as a nuclear war. And the need for these COG plans gained new urgency with nuclear proliferation, of course. During and after the Cold War, countries developed such plans to avoid or minimize confusion and disorder due to a power vacuum in the aftermath of a nuclear attack. So it's not like these are surprises. Um, our governments have attempted to prepare for the uh, consequences of a nuclear war. Uh, Canada, for example, we built numerous nuclear bunkers across the country, uh, nicknamed Defen Bunkers, in a play on the last name of a, of a prime minister at the time. In 2016, the Privy Council Office made an agreement with the Department of National Defense to open two bunkers for government officials uh, in the North Korean crisis. So we have bunkers here. We have safety plans. Um, hopefully we're keeping them somewhat secret, but we, we have them. And then in the United States, uh, so the, their COG plan was put in by George W. Bush uh, for the first time after the September 11th attacks. And what they're doing is they're rotating a staff of, of 75 to 150 senior government officials, other government workers from every department in the federal government. So they basically have these little mini governments that will be able to uh, possibly run the country in the aftermath. Um, and so these are, are held in uh, two very secure bunkers in two different places on the East Coast. Um, while researching this particular uh, subject, I, I found an answer from a senior controller in NATO. Um, and this is his, uh, his thoughts on what the plan of, of the United States government is during a post-nuclear war recovery. Um, so this isn't sourced information. Most of this, uh, most of this article and research is, but this isn't sourced. This is um, the only sources that he allegedly works for NATO. So I'll let you decide for yourselves. Here's what he says. He says, first, we declare a state of siege. This drafts all able-bodied persons into the military. This is a legal technicality. You don't get any uniforms, training, or weapons. It's just now that if you disobey an order, we get to shoot you. Then we order everybody to stay indoors for at least two weeks unless you receive specific orders to do something else. We also declare a 24-hour-a-day curfew. We block the roads to all major cities to prevent people from fleeing to the countryside. For this, we use the military and law enforcement. Obviously, we assume a lot of people will not listen to the stay-indoors laws and rules, 
So by blocking the roads, we can force them to go back home, which we would prefer to shooting them. Oh, that's uh, such a big heart. Rescue workers will start working their way towards the various impact points, fighting fires, clearing debris. Uh, intending to the wounded as they come closer to ground zero. We, the government, will set up emergency hospitals, evacuation sites, etc. We have enough food, medication, and fuel for emergency services for six months stored in what we call buffer depots. There are thousands of these, and we keep the location secret as they are all unguarded, and otherwise criminals would simply steal our stock. Secrecy is substantially cheaper than guarding them 24-7. Um, okay. After two weeks, when the fallout is at a safe level, we begin the reconstruction and reconstitution of forces phase. At this point, we declare all private property forfeited so we can pool resources. You'll be housed near your place of work, work that we decide on. That will save fuel and transport. You're paid in food, medication, and clothing. Those doing heavy reconstruction labor will get more rations, of course. People will be trained as construction workers and farmers, as those are key elements of reconstruction. After a couple of years, a lot of lawyers, salesmen, managers, etc., will have become skilled laborers, and reconstruction will increase substantially. Elections will be canceled until the military deems it possible to hold them, first at the local level, then at the state level, and finally at the federal level. As society returns to normal, we will issue new currency and you'll get paid the old way. Slowly but gradually, as reconstruction progresses, we'll start producing luxury goods again, which you are free to buy if you so desire. And after 10 to 15 years, the United States would be back to its pre-war GNP. That seems like a very optimistic scenario to me, um, but maybe that will give us a little bit of hope, uh, especially if these times become even more trying in the days ahead. So now let's talk about environmental changes that will impact economics. Uh, so um, Toon, Robox, some colleagues, uh, these guys have used observations from major wildfires in British Columbia, Canada. I personally lived through those. Uh, they're getting the data from 2017. They estimated how high the smoke from burning cities would rise into the atmosphere. That's a depressing study. During the wildfires, sunlight heating uh, heated the smoke and it caused it to soar higher and persist in the atmosphere longer than scientists um, were expecting. Uh, and this, um, so when they're looking at burning cities, uh, it was looking very bad, right? And they're saying they, they were just destroying the uh, entire the Earth's entire ability to filter air, to cool, to balance its own temperatures. Um, and then they also found that uh, this would create global cooling. So you have particles that are blocking sunlight. It's, uh, it's cooling the ocean. And that's causing the ocean's pH to skyrocket, which is the opposite of what's happening today. So right now, oceans are soaking up the carbon dioxide. Waters are becoming more acidic. Uh, within a few years of a nuclear war, a nuclear Nino would roll uh, in the uh, Pacific Ocean, said this uh, Joshua Koop, a graduate student at Rutgers. He said, um, this is like a turbocharged version of El Nino. 
uh, that thing that generates hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. So in the case of a U.S.-Russia nuclear war, is, is how he put it, the dark skies would cause the trade winds to reverse direction and water to pool in the eastern Pacific Ocean, uh, creating massive droughts, heavy rain for many parts of the world for as long as seven years. That was his theory on that. Join us next podcast as we discuss what a post-nuclear war economy will look like. And spoiler alert, Bitcoin might survive. And we will talk about that. We will talk about what has value post-war and explore potential ways to survive, protect your family, and even prosper as much as possible afterward. It will be a slim chance. But if you're inclined to try and survive, you'll be wanting as much information as you can to prepare and choose the path that is right for you. Until next time. Do you have any Instagrams you would like to share with us before you go? Now, I am so glad that you asked. I have at Canada Stock Market. At Canada Stock Market. This is sharing my Canadian investment journey in real time. I have at Baby Dragon Fitness. At Baby Dragon Fitness. This is my Shopify e-commerce store. And I also have at Baby Dragon Canada. At Baby Dragon Canada. This is my certified digital marketing company located in Victoria, BC. I am a certified digital marketing expert located in Victoria, BC, and I'm working with a fantastic graphic designer from Victoria, BC as well. Learn more at babydragoncanada.com or find us on Instagram at babydragoncanada.com.